Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. It is time for us to look at God's Word together. So I'll invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9. We're looking at verses 14 through 29 as we gradually make our way through uh, this section of the book of Romans. In 2009, a man named Clifton Williams arrived to the courthouse in Will County, Illinois. He was there to support his cousin who was actually pleading guilty to felony drug charges. The Honorable Judge Daniel Rozak presided over the hearings. As you can imagine, the tension in the room was thick. I mean, here's this judge, and he holds the fate of this young man, this boy, in his hand. Everybody leaned in to hear what the sentencing would be. Obviously, Clifton was interested to see how his cousin's life would change, if he would spend time in prison, if if he would be put on parole, what would happen to his cousin's life? And then the unexpected happened. As Judge Rozak was sentencing his cousin, Clifton Williams stretched out and he let out a big yawn. And guess what happened? Much to everyone's surprise, Clifton's cousin went home that day with two years parole, and Clifton did not go home that day. Rather, on the spot, he was convicted for contempt of court and given a six-month jail sentence for yawning in a courtroom, which I've been in courtrooms, and sometimes they're really, really boring, (laughs) He was given a six-month sentence, and, and, and people were outraged. His family was befuddled. What, what are you doing, Judge? How can you punish a guy for an involuntary action like yawning? Now, the good news is that he only spent 21 days of his six-month sentence in jail. But the fact still stands. He went to jail for yawning. Of course, when the press got a hold of this story, they did some research, and they found out that Judge Rozak had actually jailed lots of people for contempt of court. In fact, at a higher rate by far than any other judge in the district. And so if you, yes you, if you ever find yourself in his courtroom, make sure your phone is on silence. Otherwise, you're going to do time. All of this raises a very interesting question for us this morning. Was Judge Rosen abusing his power? Was Judge Rozak unfair? That's our question this morning, only it's not a question about some judge in South Chicago. It's a question about our God. Is our God unfair? Last week we asked the question, Is our God, does He fail in His mission to save His people? And we were introduced to the very 
confusing and perhaps strange feeling doctrine of election, how God chooses some people and rejects other people regardless of their race, regardless of their good behavior, even before they're born and they can earn enough favor to win God's vote. He chooses who His people are, people like Isaac versus Ishmael or Jacob versus Esau. And all of us were thinking it, and some of you even said it, that's not fair. That's not fair. And so we asked the question, is God unfair for choosing some for salvation and not others? It's natural for our minds and our hearts to go there. That's exactly why the Apostle Paul goes there and addresses this very common objection If God is all-powerful, if God makes decisions on our behalf, we want to know that He is a fair God, not a God who is like Judge Rozak. Is God unfair? To answer that, we're actually going to look at this passage this morning from the perspective of these three positions, individualism, fatalism, and patient mercy. So I'm going to go ahead and invite you to stand, and I will read Romans 9, starting in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist His will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one that formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some potter, some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath prepared for destruction? What if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy whom He prepared in advance for glory, even us whom He also called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles, as He says in Hosea? I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. This is the word of God. I'll invite you to be seated and I'll pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, We confess that it perplexes us and there are parts of it that we can't wrap our minds or our hearts around. And so we come to this section of Romans 9 Asking for your help, please open 
our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears to this good news of Jesus, even in confusing places. Lord, help us to surrender to your word. Teach us, please, and grow us in your grace, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Is God unfair? It's really interesting the way Paul answers the question, right? Because he answers it. I mean, right there in verse 14, he gives you his answer. Not at all. And then he doesn't bother to break down his answer. And that bothers some of us, right? We, we wanted like a chart or an outline or an explanation. Paul, explain yourself. Instead, he appeals to the sovereignty of God. And actually, as you read this very difficult section of Scripture, Romans 9 through 11, that is his go-to move. When we have a question we want him to answer about something we can't understand, Paul says, hey, the sovereignty of God. And here's the deal. The sovereignty of God really chafes against 21st century individualism. First, what is the sovereignty of God? This is not an official definition, but it'll work for this morning. The sovereignty of God is that God has all the power and all the authority to do all that He wants to do in our lives and in our world. God has all of the power and all the authority to do what He wants to do in our lives and in our world. With that definition, what did you notice was missing? Me, like my, my, my rights, my power, my authority. And that is shocking for Western, modern individuals like many of us. Because the air we breathe says to us, how can you call yourself an individual, a human, if you don't have the right to make your own choices and you don't have the power to follow through with those choices? It's anathema that someone makes choices for me, that I don't get to make my own choices, that I'm not the captain of my own ship. That idea has been beaten into many of our heads ever since we were little kids. I can remember it like it was yesterday, being in kindergarten, and my teacher, a very sweet lady, saying, Andrew, you are special, and you can do anything you want to do, and you can be anything you want to be. And then along comes Elsa, and she puts our anthem to music when she sings, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I'm free. And so all you have to do is turn on the TV, I would assume, in whatever country you're from, you can do it in my country, and just watch the ugly collision of people fighting for their right to be free. People demanding, I must be free to establish my own sexual identity, or I must be free to spend my money however I want, and the government doesn't get any of it and can't tell me what to do with it. 
or I must be free to determine whether or not this new human life will impact me or cost me, or I must be free to wear a mask or not wear a mask, or I must be free to get a vaccine or to not get a vaccine. The main thing is that I demand to be and stay free, and I have a dirty little secret that I have to tell you right now. I think that our infatuation with freedom is enslaving us. I think that modern individuals are so obsessed with being free that they're slaves to the idea of it. And that we're seeing individualism kill us in a variety of ways. Paul is saying, God is sovereign. And because God is sovereign, it means you are not. God has a right to make decisions on our behalf, which is exactly what he does when he chooses who belongs to his family and who doesn't belong to his family. Verses 15 and 16, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God is God, and we are not. He has a right, and we do not. The Greek words here for human desire is will, willpower. And the Greek word for effort is running. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you want it or how hard you try, God still gets to make decisions on your behalf and this decision of who comes into his family. It's based on his sovereignty. It's his right. That's not fair, most of our hearts say. But God has the right. Paul changes the imagery a little bit. He says, hey, the clay doesn't get to look up at the potter and say, hey, you up there, I don't like the way you're treating me. In the same way, the creature doesn't get to say that to the creator. We don't get to talk back to the creator. Verses 20 through 22 But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common uses? Um, Remember, this is a shame society. Your translation may reflect that and say it a little stronger, that God makes a vessel for honorable use and for dishonorable use. He has the right to make us this beautiful vase that holds a glorious bouquet of flowers that's presented to a queen who's beloved by the whole world, or he has the right to make us into a bedpan. Tim Keller says that the instincts of the modern individual are much akin to the 5th century heretic, the church deemed him a heretic, Pelagius. Pelagius would have said that we prepare ourselves for glory or we prepare ourselves for destruction, but it is our choice. Every individual has the right to choose good or evil, to serve God or to serve self. Pelagian has been gone for a while, but his ideas are back. They've been very popular in our world for the last few hundred years 
And even though they're very popular today, you don't find those ideas here in the book of Romans. Paul has already said, no, Pelagius, we don't have such a neutral starting point that you say we have. Our starting point is this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that hurts to hear as an individual, right? But it's an accurate look at the state of lost humanity. We're not going to pursue God. We're not going to choose God unless He pursues us, unless He first chooses us. Jesus said it in a variety of ways. But one of those is in John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. In other words, you're not as powerful as the modern individual says you are. But you're also not as powerless as the fatalist says you are. Fatalism is a Greek idea. Um... As Tim Keller was writing in his study on the book of Romans, he points to uh, the Greek uh, myth of Oedipus. Uh, Basically, the idea is that your fate just is, and you can't do anything to get out from under that. It's just going to be. And in the story of Oedipus, basically, his fate was to kill his father and to marry his mother, which is really inconvenient and strange. And so everybody says, no, no. Let's not do that. So the family works against it, and Oedipus works against it. But sure enough, it happens. Why? Well, the fatalist would say, because it was his fate. And this idea shows up in Islam. Um, This idea shows up in some Eastern cultures or in some Eastern uh, religions. It shows up today even. The man who has been drinking and gets into his car and doesn't wear his seatbelt, thinks to himself, you know what, if today's my day to go, then it's my day to go. And there's no amount of sobriety or seatbelts that's going to prevent me from going, from fulfilling my fate. The famous preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, described fatalism today like this. He says, hey, fatalism sometimes puts on a lab coat, or fatalism invites you into the room to lie down on the counseling couch there. And fatalism says things to you like, oh, what a shame that you are who you are. You can't help it. And really, there's no sense in fighting who you are because you're just a product of your biology or you're just a victim of your psychology. Que pena con usted. There's nothing you can do about it. And when fatalism comes to church, we call it hyper-Calvinism. Not Calvinism, hyper-Calvinism. And it goes something like this in this passage. God prepares people for glory, and He prepares people for destruction. And you and I have no say, no choice in the matter, period. It just is what it is, so resign to the fact. That's not fair. Paul picks that idea up again in verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist His will? And there are these allusions to Pharaoh and that Exodus story and Pharaoh's hard heart. And the question is, if God chooses people for destruction, 
then how can God blame us for deserving destruction, the very thing He chose us for? After all, according to the fatalist Christian, aren't we all just pre-programmed robots who were just doing what we were designed to do? That's not Paul's argument. That is not what Paul is saying. And actually, there are a number of problems with Christian fatalism here in this passage or this idea that God chooses some for glory and some for destruction, that God prepares people for destruction specifically. First, God is not the author of evil. There's a lot we don't understand, but we know that God is not the author of evil. God did not pre-program humans to sin. He created all things good, 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 very good. And we chose to rebel against Him and all of that goodness, fallen humanity. That is where this image of the clay and the potter picks up and leads us to the second problem with Christian fatalism. When we read this, we we tend to assume that the clay right there in front of the potter is really good, high-quality, pure clay. It's not. In this image, that clay is fallen clay. It's humanity that has already rebelled. And so, this hopeless mass of clay, all of it deserves to go into the garbage. But all of it doesn't. God fashions some of it for His glory, for His special purposes. Which leads us to the third problem with Christian fatalism or hyper-Calvinism in this context. I never noticed this here, but I want to see if you can catch it, okay? As I read verses 22 and 23, ask yourself this question. Who does the preparing? Who does the preparing? Are you ready? What if God although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Did you catch it? Who does the preparing? Well, it's really obvious in the one part Those who are prepared for glory are those whom He prepared in advance for glory. And so, who does the preparing for those who are prepared for destruction? It doesn't say. Paul intentionally leaves it ambivalent. And I agree with a lot of the experts on this passage who say Paul did that on purpose because it would have been so, so easy for a details guy like Paul, and Paul loves details. It would have been so easy for him to say this with symmetry, right? Whom he prepared in advance for destruction, whom he prepared in advance for glory, but he doesn't do that. Why? Because it seems like Paul doesn't believe that God is preparing people for destruction, then the question is, who is preparing people for destruction? Here's the best answer the experts come up with. We are. It's sinful humanity in collaboration with Satan, preparing ourselves for destruction. 
Which is exactly what Paul is going to say is happening to Israel in the next passage that we look at next week. Because the question comes up again, why is Israel headed for destruction and the Gentiles of all people headed for glory? And Paul is saying because Israel has insisted that they can make themselves righteous and they have rejected the righteous maker, the only unique righteous one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All of this means, I know it's a lot of mystery, all of this means somehow our decisions matter. Our decisions really matter. Even though God is in charge, our decisions matter. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis puts this. We are responsible for our choices. And if you find yourself on the day of judgment condemned, it will not be because you asked God for forgiveness for Jesus' sake and he refused. It will be because you refused the offer of the gospel and you harden your heart against God. God has his saving purposes. We don't understand how the mind of of God works in this. But when we are presented with an opportunity to be covered by the atoning blood of Jesus, to be given the righteousness, all the goodness of Jesus for free, to be invited into the family of God, we say yes. We don't insist on our individual power to to be the captain of my own ship and to save myself. We also don't uh, just resign to the fact that whatever happens, happens, and I, I, can't, I can't change my fate. No, if Jesus says, you, you, with all of your mess, I want you, I want you to be mine, we say, here I am. Take me, all of me. I am all yours, Jesus. And that, my friends, is actually not fair. That's not fair. Look, the clay isn't shipped to the potter in a neat, clean package from the clay-making factory. Actually, all of the, the clay has been picked up out of the garbage of human rebellion, and some of it gets fashioned into glory, and some of it stays as it is. Some of it gets the honor of Jesus, and some of it gets to keep its own dishonor. The only fair thing for God to do is to allow the clay to stay in the garbage. What is unfair is the gospel itself. Because without deserving it, people like us who deserve God's wrath get what? We get all of Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' glory. That's unfair. Jesus was thrown into the garbage of the cross on our behalf, and we were thrown into the family of God. That's not fair, and man, is it radically good news when you hear it, and when you hear it, you accept it. In time and in space, in the real reality of the human experience with all of our feelings that we're making a life-altering, eternity-altering, world-altering decision, we, yes, we choose Jesus now, in the background, it's because the Father chose us. It's because Jesus has died for us. It's because the Holy Spirit has finally gotten all of the gunk out of our ears and out of our hearts, and we finally hear it and see it. But yes, we choose Jesus. 
and we say, take me, and we repent of all of our badness, and we beg him for all of his goodness, and we get welcomed into the family. Now, all of this is possible because of this third perspective, God's patient mercy. Patient. Because when mankind rebelled, God had every right to say, well, that's it. Operation made in the image of God is now operation. They messed it up. I'm done with them. I'm going to go try this somewhere else. I gave them my image. I gave them an interesting part of my image, which is the ability to make free decisions. And what did they do with it? They rebelled against me. And he could have given up on us, but he doesn't. He keeps the story going because he is patient and he's full of mercy. It's the same with Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh's mentioned here. Pharaoh has moment after moment after moment to repent. He has opportunity after opportunity to listen to God and say, all right, I'm going to let God's people go. Just go. I'm sorry. I was wrong. This was all about me and my power. Go. You're free. But he doesn't. He hardens his heart against God, and God gives him a hardened heart. It's both happening at the same time. God actually gives him what Pharaoh most wanted, which was a life without God and without God's ways. But God didn't destroy Pharaoh in his first moment of rebellion, did he? It wasn't, let my people go. No, fine, smite, you're done, Pharaoh. No. Somehow... God, in his mysterious kindness, kept Pharaoh, sustained Pharaoh, even kept him in a position of power. Why? Verse 16, or verse 17, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verses 22 and 23, he's so patient. What if... God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. People like Pharaoh, people like Judas Iscariot, he kept them up. What if he did this, Paul says, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared and advanced for glory? Paul is saying, just imagine with me. What if, what if all of the wickedness in the world, God has been patiently enduring all of it so that more and more people who would be objects of wrath otherwise could experience His love? Verse 26 says that in the very places where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. It sure sounds like our God looks upon people who have chosen to harden their hearts and He experiences affection. And that He melts hard hearts with His grace. So that this experience of, hey, you're not naturally my person, but I want you to be my daughter. I want you to be my son. Paul says you don't have to imagine it. It's true. That's the redemptive story that the Bible is telling. That's exactly what God 
is doing. And look, all of this interplay between how God's sovereignty and human responsibility actually works, we don't really know. And that's okay. We don't have to. We're not God. He is God. But we do know this one thing over and over and over again from the Bible, that God loves to save sinners. He does. He loves to save sinners. I like the way one pastor put it. God's wrath and God's mercy are not equivalent. They are not symmetrical. God does not delight in wrath the same way in which he delights in mercy. In fact, his wrath serves his mercy. His wrath serves as the dark backdrop against which the brilliance of his mercy shines. That means that mercy is ultimate, not wrath. It's all about God's mercy. It's all setting up God's mercy. What should that do to us? I want to finish with a story that uh, D. James Kennedy used to tell. Uh, the story goes like this. There were, there were five men, and they were friends of, of Kennedy's, and they all wanted to go and to rob a bank. Well, Kennedy hears them um, talking about this plan to rob a bank, and he interjects. He says, guys, don't do this. This is moronic. This is stupid. It's illegal. Somebody's going to get hurt. Don't do this. And they're like, whatever. And they push through him. They leave the room. And so Kennedy runs out the door, jumps on one of the guys, grabs him, wrestles him to the ground, while the other four go and rob the bank. While they're robbing the bank, a guard is killed, unfortunately, the men are caught, the men are convicted for murder, and they await the death penalty. But the one man who is not involved in the robbery goes free. This is what he says. Now I ask you this question. Whose fault was it that the other men would die? Now this other man who's walking around free, can he say, because my heart is so good, I'm a free man? No. The only reason that he is free is because of me, because I restrained him. So those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves, but those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus. Thus we see that salvation is all of grace from its beginning to its end. Salvation is all of grace from its beginning to its end. So is God unfair? The answer is yes and no. It is fair for him to allow rebellious people to continue to rebel and to get what they deserve. And it is not fair for him to save rebellious people and to make them daughters and sons beloved in his family while punishing Jesus for their sins. But that is exactly what he does because that is the gospel because, friends, he loves us. And so we give thanks. Lord, thank you for this message, as complicated as it is, to see your heart through all of it, even the things we don't understand, to know that you love people like us, that our decisions matter, but that you're also in control. Help us to rest in that, to really believe it, to live like it's true, and to show the world how good you are to save people like us. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.